which is fine. All right. So uh, as a pastor, um, not only do I do uh, memorial services for um, crosswalkers who we lose, uh, who transition on, uh, but I also am called on to do this in the community a lot. And um, it doesn't matter if the, uh, if the grieving family uh, is deeply faithful or not. Uh, this psalm, which I'm going to read to you, uh, which is undoubtedly uh, the best known psalm of all 150, brings comfort because of what truth it speaks about God. So this is how uh, King David, uh, who was kind of a wild guy, uh, he kind of lived the full gamut of life. Um, he's known as being uh, the most beloved king of Israel in the Jewish tradition. Uh, he was a warrior, um, unparalleled. He's the guy that took down the nine-foot Goliath as a kid, right? Remember that story? Uh, but he was also a poet. He's given credit for many of the Psalms. Uh, and he was also a musician. Apparently, he was uh, pretty good with a guitar. And uh, when King Saul, who he was going to replace one day, uh, he had, we think, had probably a mental health condition. And when he would start to um, go into, we think, probably a manic phase, uh, one of the things that would calm him down is David pulling out his six string. <laughs> and he would do a little jam session, and it would kind of bring Saul uh, back uh, down to a more um, healthier level. And so this guy, um, David, he was a good guy, but we also know that he had some messes in his life. Um, he was not a good father, not a good father. Uh, he made some decisions that really hurt uh, his oldest son, Absalom, so much so that Absalom wanted to kill him and take the throne for himself later in life. That's a bad family dynamic. Uh, the one who did become king, uh, Solomon, who was known as the wisest of all people who lived up until that point, uh, he was uh, the child of uh, his mistress turned his new wife Bathsheba. Uh, not, the, not the child that caused David to do horrific things, killing off Bathsheba's husband in battle. Now, that's part of the ugliness of the story. Um, but once uh, the child that uh, David gave Bathsheba in really awful, uh, hurtful, uh, manipulative circumstances. Uh, that child died. And uh, Bathsheba, fearing for her life, wanted to become pregnant again. And David helped with that. And uh, once uh, this child was born, uh, Bathsheba demanded that that son become king. She was looking out for her son. But she was also looking out for herself. It was a horrific, horrific scene. But David, even though he was fully human in such grand ways, great ways and horrible ways, he still experienced the love of God in his life. This is a profound truth that I've discovered too, that even at times when we do not feel like God would want anything to do with us, God's still as present as ever which is why David wrote this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, <clears throat> I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. 
You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. And surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. <clears throat> this is a psalm of experience. And David knew this was the character of God. The shepherd idea shows up uh, in Jesus's words and his teaching. We catch up with him in the gospel of John, and he's talking about shepherd stuff. So he says, let me set this before you as plainly as I can. If a person climbs over or through the fence of a sheep pen, instead of going through the gate, <clears throat> you know he's up to no good, a sheep rustler. The shepherd walks right up to the gate. The gatekeeper opens the gate to him, and the sheep recognize his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he gets them all out, he leads them, and they follow because they are familiar with his voice. They won't follow a stranger's voice, but will scatter because they aren't used to the sound of it. Jesus told this simple story, but they had no idea what he was talking about. So he tried again. <clears throat> I'll be explicit then. I am the gate for the sheep. All those others that are up to no good, sheep stealers, every one of them, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. Anyone who goes through me will be cared for, will freely go in and out and find pasture. A thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. And I just want to remind you here that in the Gospel of John, most of the time, including this one, when we see that word eternal life, he's not talking about getting to heaven. He's talking about a real, meaningful, deep, rich life now, infused of the things of God, uh, where heaven uh, resides, wherever God is. So that's quite a different picture, maybe, than uh, you grew up with and understanding uh, what this whole faith journey is about and what's going on here. But I just want you to ponder, what is Jesus' vision of God here? It's a pretty lovely vision of a shepherd who knows his, his sheep. The sheep know his voice. Uh, he means them no harm. He only wants good things for his sheep, uh, wants well-being for the sheep. He's going to protect the sheep, look out for the sheep, uh, doesn't want the, the thieves to come in and do anything to the sheep. And Jesus is the one who's kind of opening this up so that more sheep uh, can go out to pasture uh, with this God. And so then uh, the question for the to follow up with that is also, what is his role in helping people walk with God? Well, like he said, he uses the metaphor loosely. He shifts it around a little bit, but it's interesting that here he's talking about himself as the gate and not the shepherd. Uh, at other times, he mixes that around, but in this one, he's like, I'm the one that's just opening this up, and I see that as deeply ingrained in what Jesus was about. How can I help you know more about this God that I've experienced, Jesus is saying? That's changed my theology, changed my outlook. It's made me a different person, a different kind of Jewish teacher than you've heard before. Well, uh, today as we're talking about God, we need to acknowledge kind of an obvious thing first, which has to do with worldviews and the difference between a religious worldview and a non-religious worldview. And this uh, comes right out of uh, Marcus Borg's book, um, The Heart of Christianity. This one, you're here probably because you're leaning more toward the religious worldview, uh, that there is more uh, than just this flesh and blood. So the non-religious would say there's just this. 
Um, on the religious side, we'd say the non-material layer of level of reality, that that's God, that's the thing we're talking about. And the non-religious view would simply say everything is matter and energy. They might further go on to say that we don't know everything yet, but one day uh, we're going to have no need of understanding God because we're going to figure it all out. Uh, whereas the religious side says, no, there's this other reality that we can't figure out, or not as much as, as science would have us do. On the religious side, the data that we have to sort of not prove God, but is the witness and wisdom of religions uh, and weird science. So the, the witness and wisdom of religions, um, you know, the enduring religions of the world, uh, the mystics all across the board, the religious don't say the same thing. They, of course, they're not going to say the same thing uh, because they're born out of different contexts at different times in history and all that. But the mystics of all the grand traditions, the enduring traditions, when they drill down to understanding the heartbeat of God, they all come out of their uh, trance saying that God is love and lovely, and God is good and gracious. And that's a wonderful, hopeful reality. The weird science thing actually kind of works against this other thing, which is on the non-religious worldview, where they say we're a giant system of particles and force fields ruled by natural laws. Well, the funny thing is, is that <laughs> the natural laws work for the most part until they don't work. And when you get to certain levels, like on the quantum level, things don't make any sense anymore. And we don't understand why things happen the way they do. Uh, like one of the things on the quantum level, we, science has long said that we can observe something and our observation will not affect the something that we're observing. But quantum uh, physics has learned that on that level, our observation of the thing affects the thing. It makes it do things. And when we're not observing it, it doesn't. So somehow there is a relationship between whatever's going on in us and whatever's going on with that. Other weird things happen, like uh, science suggests that if you split uh, an atom like this and you separate them uh, one place to another, and maybe by as many as 100 miles or more, uh, that whatever you do to this half over here is not going to have any impact on this thing over here. And yet on the quantum level, even uh, the things that we do, even if it's just an observation, when we mess with this thing 100 miles away, this thing over here reacts. It's weird science. And this is kind of that thisness of what are we talking about here and how, how are we connected and what is connecting us? This would point uh, folks like you and me, perhaps, to think that there's more going on and that more, whatever it is, it might not be an old white guy with a big beard on a throne up in heaven somewhere, but there's something else going on. In fact, I would go so far to say that if you know anybody who are true atheists, most people will just cough up to agnostic. They're just not quite sure. I get that. That's legit. But a legit atheist, hats off to them. We need to have them come talk about how they are keeping up their faith. <laughs> and I don't mean this in kind of a, a simplistic way of, well, how do you think creation got started? That's usually our favorite. You know, we think it's our kind of our trump card kind of a thing. But I'm saying more than that. If there's no God, why are we existing? And I don't mean this in like, why, again, not from a, uh, a creation of nothing thing, but I mean, why aren't we completely selfish and just killing each other right now? Why do we share at all? Why do we love? Why would we love? Because love is selfless. It's a giving away. Why would we do that? Because the normal animal instinct we would think would just be to hoard it and make sure it's all, all ours. 
Why wouldn't we kill everybody and just take all their stuff? Because that, that seems like that's what you would expect. But we don't do that, by and large. Some people do, of course. Some nations do that, of course. But by and large, uh, when we look at humanity and the whole created order, there seems to be more energy and love and positivity. In fact, I want to give you comfort in this great truth. When we watch the news, it would have us believe that the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and parts of it are. And we need to do something about that, for sure. But just when you hear that and feel overwhelmed, just go outside and take a deep breath and watch the trees wave with the wind. And remind yourself of what Gordon shared with us earlier. The grass is still growing. Animals are still thriving. The seas are teeming with life, some things we don't even know about yet. The universe continues to expand at an accelerating rate. You are a part of something much bigger, much more full of life than whatever sliver of darkness there might be. And it's not to underestimate or devalue the pain of that darkness, but just remember, life is always bigger. Light is always brighter than death and darkness. And that's a good thing. Well, uh, to quote Borg here to help us with this, um, why are we even asking these questions? And he says, it makes a difference how we see the character of God, for how we see the character of God shapes our sense of what faithfulness to God means, and thus what the Christian life is about. Your beliefs about God matter. In fact, uh, I would suggest that who you are in some way reflects your core belief of God. And so uh, some people, uh, when they think about God, uh, we're often culturally uh, very familiar with the left-hand column, supernatural theism, uh, where God is a person-like supreme being creator. God is up there somewhere, intervener, and intervention includes spectacular events, breaking into the natural order and doing unnatural things, and prayer gets God to act. And there's plenty of scripture to back all those things up, because in the ancient world, this belief in God, this concept of God, surely existed. In a very primitive world, of course they believed that God was up there. Our creation poem in Genesis 1 reflects such things. God is literally up there beyond the dome uh, that they assumed was covering the entire earth. Uh, so they had these images because it made sense. God is controlling the stars. God is moving the sun. God's stopping the sun if God wants to. God shows up and does miraculous things if God wants to, as God being up there and we're down here. But there's another view that also shows up in the Bible, and this one is gaining more voice uh, with time, and that is panentheism. Now, this is different than pantheism. Pantheism believes that everything is God. Panentheism believes that everything is in God. Uh, pan, uh, everything, and in theism, God everything in God, which means there is no separation, that God is with us as close as our next breath, is in us, uh, is over there, is over there, is as far away as could possibly be and as intimate as can possibly be. This is panentheism, and this also shows up in the Bible. It shows up in the Psalms. So you have you don't have the luxury of saying this is the only biblical way or not, because both views exist in the Bible. Psalm 139 is a great example. Uh, if I were to go to the highest heavens, you would be there. If I were to go to the depths of hell, you would be there. You know everything about me, every intimate thing about me. 
all the hairs of my head as they cease to exist. You know, all these things are, are all things that God knows because God is intimately involved in our lives. So it's very different. And then in this panentheistic view, uh, God is seen as an encompassing spirit, and that the universe itself is in God. Uh, Paul uses this quote in this next uh, point. Uh, he uses this in, in preaching to some non-Jewish people, that God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. By Paul using that quote, which was actually a popular quote among Greek speakers, uh, he's agreeing with them and trying to give them an idea about who this God is in whom we live and move and have our being, that he began to know through Jesus' example. Uh, it's it's uh, more than uh, what we see on supernatural uh, uh, theism. Uh, so it's more than everything, and yet God is right here, and there is intention and interaction. Uh, so God intends things a certain way, um, but does not force it. We'll get to that a little bit later. You get a little bonus today, uh, more than Borg, uh, I'm going to share with you. Uh, and, the, and the interaction is Im impossible to escape from. Uh, you can't do anything apart from the gaze and presence of God. It's impossible because God is in you and you are in the swimming pool of God all the time. One way to think about this, um, if you were to ask a goldfish, you know, tell me about the water that you're in, uh, the goldfish would say, what is water? Because it's the only environment that this goldfish knows to live. And yet you and I, in our scientific arrogance, if I may be so bold, uh, we might say or might ask each other, well, where is God? <laughs> where if we had the lens to see, if we had uh, the sensibility of Jesus among us all the time, which we do it sometimes, we would recognize that we're swimming in it. We can't be without it. And the character of God is born out of these things. So if your view of God, the concept is a supernatural uh, judge, um, it's going to be very much oriented around rules, regulations, and law, which again, we see this uh, evidence in the Bible. So in this frame, uh, God's character is he's a lawgiver, a judge, a king. Uh, the relationship is phrased in legal terms. Disobedience requires sacrifice to be saved. You got to make up for it somehow. And believing is the way that you get that kind of salvation. Uh, so you have to do something in order to uh, get what God has for you. On the other side, a character of God in the panentheistic way has a different set of character traits uh, based in love, justice, and grace. So uh, it's a love as we see a love as with Israel. And even when Israel is unfaithful, uh, you see this in the prophet Hosea, uh, where that whole storyline is about faithfulness to God. And God is saying, man, I just, I want the relationship back. I want the relationship back. And that's expressed as who God is. Uh, justice is a social love kind of thing. So it's like grace is an individual thing. Grace for the society is expressed as justice. Uh, God loves everybody and everything. And the goal uh, is not to get people saved in that left side kind of way of column, but the goal is transformed that we are transformed into compassionate people. These are two very different approaches and two very different goals. And a lot of us, if we grew up in a conservative Protestantism, say that three times fast, Protestantism, uh, we're born into a, a, an idea of thinking that really the goal of God and the goal of Jesus is to get you saved, meaning that you go to heaven one day. But what if that, what if that doesn't express what God is trying to do fully at all? 
what if that's just such a small part of what God is trying to do that you almost need to say it's an error to think such things when the breadth of what God is trying to do is to make us more whole, where shalom uh, permeates and becomes reality in ourselves so we feel good and blessed ourselves. We know that we're loved by God and we're able to live in love. And we do that in community and the world where there's a relationship between the creation and created, and we're able to uh, get along together. We take care of each other and our world. The whole thing is supposed to be going like that. That's what's on the right side. It's a very different picture of reality. And our pictures of what the character of God like matter. Um, just to give you an example of this from this past week. So I'm up on stage messing around with stuff and shifting some things around. And Dar comes in and uh, says, hey, you got a phone call. And she'll only talk to the pastor. I'm like, I'm not, I don't think I'm expecting any calls. And then Dar said, uh, when I asked her if I could help her, she said, I'm not trying to get a job interview here, right? <laughs> so this person's grumpy, right? Definitely grumpy. And so I get on the phone uh, with her and uh, said, I am the pastor. And uh, you can tell she's got edge and attitude right from the beginning. And she lets me know that she grew up Catholic, but she left Catholicism because of all the sexual misconduct stuff and kind of talked about, you know, the travesty of $4 billion, you know, being paid out because of mistakes being made and cover-ups and all this stuff. And so now she's just all about the Bible. Just, I want a church that's just about the Bible. So she wanted to know, what is your denomination? And so I said, well, our affiliation with the American Baptist churches, uh, which is a very broad uh, network. So there's a place for conservatives and progressives uh, and everybody in between. And uh, so she felt pretty good about that because Baptists have a reputation for being biblical. And then she kept, uh, I was on the witness stand, man. And so she kept, uh, she kept laying it on me. Well, when are your services? And I said, well, we have a service at 10 o'clock on Sunday. You don't have an evening service on Sunday. I knew a lot of Baptist churches have evening service. What about Wednesday? You don't have a Wednesday evening service? And then she says, apparently people in Napa just don't love Jesus. So I just, I said, well, I don't know, maybe. I think, you know, this is just when they're available. And so we're just trying to accommodate when they're available. She cuts me off and says, that's not what we're supposed to do. Real Jesus followers are supposed to show up for church. That's it. And so I was like, yeah, okay, great. And so I'm thinking to myself, I'm really not sure she's a great fit for crosswalk. <laughs> How can I help her see this? And so she kind of settles down from that. And so I said, well, I just want to let you know a couple more things. Uh, first thing is, is, you know, the way we understand the Bible uh, is we believe in, um, in full uh, equality uh, with women. And so women can serve at the highest level uh, of the church, including pastor and board chair and all that stuff. So you need to know that. And I could just kind of hear her grumbling a little bit about that, but she wasn't going to make too big of an issue. So you could live with that somehow. Right. And then I said, Oh, another thing, uh, we really affirm uh, equality with the LGBTQ community as well. And we're, we think that uh, same gender lifelong covenant marriage uh, is in, is congruent with the shalom of God and therefore God blesses it. <laughs> When you preach that, you're snuffing your nose at God and blah, 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 and you're going to hell. Goodbye. Like, like this. So what do we learn here? I would suggest that if you are really hardcore on the left side here about that is the character of God, that is going to manifest itself out in your worldview and in your character. 
why do you think there are so many jerks who are Christians? When we all know the answer to the song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. What you think about God matters. This is not just brain stuff out there. It matters to your core person, your worldview. And if your primary view of God is a God who's up there in heaven, he can't wait to come and just wipe out all the bad people, and you are sure you're not one of them, and you have a list ready for God in case God misses a few, right? This is a problem. And I maintain that it comes right back to our core worldview, which is a part of our core theology. Theology matters. And when we're looking at this stuff, I want to look and see what Jesus has to say about it. Borg says, unconditional grace is not about the afterlife, just a remembrance there, but the basis of our relationship with God in this life. Is the basis for our life with God law or grace? Requirements and rewards or relationship, or, or requirements and rewards or relationship and transformation. Grace affirms the latter. I don't have any problem telling you that I think, I think we have historically messed up the primary Christian message. And while grace is meant to be this thing that says the love of God is with you without condition, meaning it is just there for you. You can't screw it up. You can't mess it up. You can't do anything to get God to ungrace you or to unfriend you. It's impossible to do. That's what grace means. You don't have to do anything for it. It's just simply there for the taking and for the transformation. But as soon as we add a caveat to it saying, you're not forgiven, you're not loved by God unless you do X, Y, and Z. And then once you say X, Y, and Z, you don't keep the grace of God unless you toe the line. You see what we've done there? We've completely wiped out what grace means in the first place. Grace was not me meant to whip us into shape. Grace was meant to woo us into more full human beings. It's a very different vision. Well, that's where Borg kind of ends, but here at Crosswalk, we take it another level because uh, we have found a home in open and relational theology. So I want to take you through some basics of what this means. First, a couple premise statements. And there's lots of writing on this. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Tom Ord, so we have three of his books back there. Uh, the first uh, thing about open and relational theology is we acknowledge that God, who God is, what God is, knows more than any other being. So there's not a more knowledgeable, knowledgeable being. We would, uh, there's a caveat there, I'll get to that uh, anywhere. And the reason why God knows more than anything else, because God is in everything and everything is in God. So God knows what's on your mind and goes what's on people's minds in New York City and Saudi Arabia and everywhere. Knows what's going on all the time. And that's a lot of information. Uh, God is the most powerful, influential being, uh, so we believe that, and that God's primary characteristic is love, and therefore does not control anyone or anything. This is where we get into uh, dicey territory, and theologians debate this. Is God's primary characteristic that God is almighty and powerful, or is God's primary characteristic that God is fully loving, because they cannot be tied? One has to win over the other. 
A very simple logic here, so if you can follow this. If God is all-powerful, but we try to say that God is all-loving, somebody is going to call foul. And they're going to give you historical example, one after another. Whoppers, just the Holocaust, perhaps, and recent American slavery, ongoing slavery that is still prolific all over the world. If God is almighty and is able to stop these travesties, how dare we say that God is loving if, if God allowed those travesties to happen? And so then the, the good Christian says, well, God doesn't want those things, but God allows those things. Do you understand that that is a big slice of baloney? <laughs> because God allowing is another way of saying God choosing. Because if, if you have a friend and they're drunk as a skunk, and you have the power to keep them from getting behind the wheel, but you say, well, I'm going to allow it because I, I want to be godlike. Do you understand what you've done? Do you understand what you are responsible then for that person's forthcoming terrible choice to get behind the wheel? You get it? But if God is all loving, if that's the primary characteristic, then that messes with how God is going to interact with people because God will not act in a controlling way with anyone or anything, if love is the primary characteristic. That means that God influences but never forces, which means the future is open and unknown because we affect it. Hear that. This is, this is the openness of open and relational theology. God does not know what the future holds with specificity. He does not know the day you are going to die. Yet, in our popular theology, when we find ourselves at funeral, how many times have you heard it said, well, it was just their time? Or something terrible happens, I guess it was just God's will. And I want to tell you, things happen for a reason, but not because God is a causal agent behind it saying, well, I'm going to go ahead and mess up Emily's life tomorrow and Sharon's after that. And George, you're coming next uh, real soon, but we're going to lay off Darlene because she's a wonderful uh, human being and we're going to let her enjoy, you know, uh, the rest of her years. Do you understand how crazy uh, this, this kind of thinking is? But if, if we truly have free will and if God is truly loving and not controlling, then it means we have agency and God cannot know for sure when those things are going to happen. Now you will say, and I have said before, when you experience certain things and you look back and you say, man, God was clearly in this. This is exactly what God wanted to happen. I, I use this for the story of how I met Lynn, my wife, about how we just happened at the last minute, decide to go to the same church service. You know, we didn't know each other. We ended up there at the same time. And that kind of started everything off. The timing was just perfect for her life and my life and everything clicked and all these things like the stars were aligned. God's will, we might say. Well, it might look like that in retrospect, but isn't it also possible that God is wooing things along all the time, and a hundred times we might say no to whatever that, that wooing influence of God might be, and we might miss out on who knows what God might have in store for us. But on this particular day, Lynn and I were particularly sensitive to what God was wooing us toward. <laughs> uh, I didn't really want to make the drive to Kansas City, but I decided I would to sing in a trio with my brother and his wife for this service. Uh, my wife wasn't really up for going to church, but she was going to see her brother and her sister and brother-in-law there and decided to go at the last minute. And there we both 
are wooed to the same thing at the same time. And in that moment, it feels like God is making this thing happen because God is wooing all over the place. But it's very different than God saying, this is what's going to happen next. Now, you will find evidence in the Bible the other way as well, that God clearly causes these things to happen. But you do not get to get off easy on this because the Bible speaks broadly. Out of the 66 books, there are many voices writing from many different experiences, and we have to respect that. So you're not off the hook. No easy answer here, no simple thing, no bumper sticker theology here, except perhaps God is love. And the final thing here is God's character remains constant, but God constantly changes in response to creation. That gets to the relational side of relational theology. Open simply means that the future is open, God is open, because God is in a relationship with us all the time. And this other piece is, is that what happens in creation affects God. While God's character of love may never change, God is affected and impacted by what we do. This is bold theology, even if it makes total sense to you. But there was a theological tradition that said, God is unchanging and unaffected by your tears, your mourning. You may think so because you're a human being and you don't know anything, but God is unaffected by your pain and suffering and your prayers and your sense that God cares. It's a bunch of baloney. That was theology of yesteryear because they're absolutely committed to the idea that God is unchanging and cannot change, which means that nothing can affect God. But to believe that God's primary characteristic is love implies relationship. And relationship means Mutual affection, affecting each other. So it's bold, even if it might feel very comfortable on you, because we've come a long way. Well, this kind of theological stuff, and by the way, uh, if some of you are new to this stuff, um, you might be thinking, I can't believe he's getting away saying this stuff, and who is getting the tar and feathers ready for this moron? <laughs> Why are people still, what kind of mind control is this guy working here? Um, there's a lot of people uh, that are seeing this and viewing this, so I'm not alone in this. I'm a mouthpiece of this stuff. Uh, but I also want to let you know that these are big uh, seismic changes in our orientation to who God is. And any time we have any kind of monumental shift in our worldview, our paradigms, it's difficult. And we get there incrementally most of the time. Unless we have one of these satori moments of mystical unity experience kind of a thing where the, you know, the veil is lifted and we see things in a broad way and it just blows our minds in an instant, which rarely happens, most of us were easing forward into this. And so maybe for you today, maybe, maybe there's too much for you to digest in one moment and your head hurts and your heart aches a little bit and you're wondering, you know, should I believe anything that this clown is saying? I would just have you really sit with that question. Is God's primary characteristic love or is God's primary characteristic power? Now, Borg concludes, what's at stake in the question of God's character is our image of the Christian life. Is Christianity about requirements? Here's what you must do to be saved or stay saved. Or is Christianity about relationship and transformation? Here's the path. Follow it. Both involve imperatives, but one is a threat and the other an invitation. I came across a uh, rendition of Psalm 23. 
an adaptation written by Bobby McFerrin, you know, the musician. And uh, I, wanna, I wanna say to people who are watching on YouTube and uh, on Zoom, I think we're having a technical difficulty, so you're not gonna hear this song, so you're just gonna have to imagine it. <laughs> Uh, but this is uh, Bobby McFerrin leading a group of uh, acapella vocalists and his translation of Psalm 23. And this is how he translated it. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need. She makes me lie down in green meadows beside the still waters. She will lead. And I want to remind you here, if you're uncomfortable with this kind of language for God first, God is bigger than gender. God is not male. God is not female. And so we need to get comfortable with gender fluidity when we think about theology and God. And the second thing I want to remind you of is that the name for God, El Shaddai, which is one of the early common names for God in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and is also a word that is often translated as all-powerful or almighty God is a mistranslation that El Shaddai literally translates the breasted one. The breasted one. A feminine, nurturing image of God. How different. So Bobby McFerrin has every right to say, she restores my soul. She rights my wrong. She leads me in a path of good things and fills my heart with songs. Even though I walk through a dark and dreary land, there is nothing that can shake me. She has said she won't forsake me. I'm in her hands. She sets a table before me in the presence of my foes. She anoints my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, surely goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will live in the house forever, forever, and ever glory to be glory be to our mother and daughter and to the holy of holies as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end amen so use this song as a time for reflection uh, some mindfulness about what you've heard today what's resonating with your spirit today and after the song concludes uh, we'll uh, say uh, uh, an adaptation of jesus uh, Lord's Prayer after that. Here it is. May you know mother as, may you know God as a mother with a fierce love that will do everything possible to help her children thrive. A love of a mother that even though things go south, will never stop loving her child and stop loving her child. May you know God as a nurturing presence that is there to give you everything that you need to survive, is for you and with you because this being loves you. May you know that for the rest of your life, whether you are present to it or not, this love is for you all the time, working in the background for your benefits, for the benefit of all people and all creation. And may that reality change your eyes and change your ears and change your heart and change your lips that you might proclaim the very good things of God, especially when the darkness tries to overcome the light, when death tries to overcome life itself.
To that end, let us pray together the prayer of Jesus by Jim, Jim Carter. Eternal spirit, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver, source of all this is and that shall be, father and mother of us all, loving God in whom is heaven. The hallowing of your name echo through the universe. The way of your justice be followed by peoples of the world. Your heavenly will be done by all created beings. Your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope and come on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. In the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and test, strengthen us. From trials too great to endure, spare us. From the grip of all that is evil, free us. For you reign in the glory of the power that is love, now and forever. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. I hope you had a great experience today. Go Warriors. Pray for the Warriors today at 1230. See you next week. Thanks for coming.